to Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Heather Murray, your host for tonight's show. Tonight I'm going to bring you an interview with Diana Smith, Manager, Recovery College, as she talks about a whole new approach to recovery for people living with mental ill health in the ACT. But first, let's go to Sophie Singh as she talks with Carl Tiderman. Australian politics continues to fracture on the issue of energy policy and over the last two years it's been a major factor in the political demise of at least two Prime Ministers. Despite the authority that Scott Morrison now holds by virtue of the Coalition's return to government, the divisions around energy policy are set to continue. But what exactly is the government's policy on energy? We're given repeated assurances that energy prices will come down, Supply will be guaranteed and, at the same time, Australia will meet its Paris emissions reductions target at a canter. But how exactly does the government intend to achieve these three outcomes? Carl Titterman joins us to hopefully illuminate this energy policy opaqueness. Carl, who's on the cusp of completing his PhD at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU, is a regular Subject ACT contributor and we welcome him back to the program today. Carl, it's good to see you and thanks for coming on. You do. Thanks for having me again. Last time we spoke, the Turnbull government was claiming a policy breakthrough with the National Energy Guarantee. Yep. Days after that interview, the neg was gone and so was Turnbull. <laughs> yes, indeed. So what are we left with? Let's try and tackle each of the key pillars perhaps separately. Sure. How does the Morrison government aim to lower energy costs? And correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just electricity costs, it's gas costs as well? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with gas because it's not the focus of my research. I think with gas, it comes down to basically the prices increased so drastically because we're importing so much. And so the the prices that Australians were paying were tending to be in line with what the export price was, which was fairly high because people were pretty keen on our gas. With electricity, they've said it will come down, but as to how that will actually happen um, remains a little bit unclear. So they actually don't have a clear policy framework to make that happen? Uh, No. So since the NEG died, the Council of Australian Governments that we've spoken about previously, which is essentially a a kind of platform that exists across a lot of other different policy domains between the federal government and each of the state and territory governments, they are still investigating the reliability aspect of the NEG, but there's been no mention of any kind of emissions reduction in the energy sector. So the supply element of the National Energy Guarantee is still being considered? It hasn't been put into place, but they are still looking into it. Um, So yeah, reliability slash supply. The mechanism to lower costs is still something that needs to be developed and really put in place. It's still a a work in progress. One element of the policy is, is being referred to as their big stick approach, mm. which uh, could see the breaking up of power companies. And it has attracted quite a bit of criticism. Mm. Uh, the Energy Users Association of Australia warned a Senate inquiry that, quote, populist policies do not address the fundamental reasons for high electricity prices. Yeah. Before we go to what perhaps are those fundamental reasons for mm. high prices, can you explain what what is this big stick approach that's being talked about? Yeah, to my understanding, it was, I guess, a little bit about some of the generators having been gaming the system. So using market power to essentially bid in uh, to the spot market in the national electricity market at higher prices than sort of what are reasonable or the way that the market is supposed to operate using market power to bid in higher. 
the way it's designed, it's supposed to actually go to the lowest bidder, sort of given period. So taking advantage of some easy profits. Yeah, and and the idea of the big stick, I guess, was was trying to suggest that they might be able to stop that by breaking up these companies, which would be fairly unheard of in competition law, I would have imagined. And legally, I would imagine, incredibly difficult. I mean, you look at things like the big supermarkets and the difficulties that the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission have in getting them to do anything. They just wrap them up in court cases and they don't have enough money to essentially win. And that same sort of monopoly would exist in terms of energy companies? Yeah, some of them are enormous. Uh, Energy Australia, AGL, um, Origin, they're massive companies. From what you're saying, it sounds like it's probably unlikely then that the government's going to to get it through and even if it did, Mm. it would then be subject to legal challenges. Mm. Do you think, assuming it did get through, that it would actually be effective? It may. I think it depends on what they're actually able to do. So, I mean, electricity prices are made up of a couple of different variables. So there's the actual cost of generating that electricity, but the larger cost, and it's roughly 60% of most people's electricity prices, is actually the delivery of that uh, electricity. So is that like the poles, the poles and the wires? wires? Exactly. So I don't know what it was, five years or so ago when there was all of this noise about the gold plating of the network done by network businesses. I mean, it was more to do with the fact that peak demand was increasing because so many people were installing uh, air conditioners and that the energy use or the electricity use at any one time was getting so high that they had to invest in the poles and wires to the extent that they were able to serve that electricity for fairly short periods of time throughout the year, generally in the peak of summer. But then the cost of that investment then has to spread out across uh, electricity prices throughout the year, and that goes directly to consumers. So when the Energy Users Association refers to the fundamental reasons, it Mm. is that significant component, in fact, majority component, posed by the infrastructure, the poles and wires. Yeah, I would say so, for sure. So is there any way to minimise the cost associated with that infrastructure? Not really in the short term. So, I mean, once the investment has been made, the businesses are allowed to recoup their costs. It's regulated by the Australian Energy Regulator each year. So network businesses, particularly distribution uh, companies, so they're the sort of, that's literally the poles and wires. You've also got transmission companies, which is um, sending electricity much longer distances. And then the distribution companies send it to the consumers. I mean, the Australian Energy Regulator could perhaps reduce the return on investment that was allowed from distribution companies. Companies, but it would probably be fairly unpopular amongst those businesses. But yeah, there would be levers to pull, but you're probably looking at longer term. I guess that's why the government has looked at the most obvious and I don't want to say easiest, but yeah, most obvious part of electricity prices that they may actually be able to bring down, which is actually the cost of generating it. It would be long time frames and quite difficult to reduce costs of network investments. Once they've been made, you've got to pay sure. for them. So sure. going forward, you might be able to change the regulations to change the way. And I mean, there's a lot of talk now about distributed energy and and needing poles and wires less, but we could also need them more depending on the way that the distribution network is transformed. Because even with energy generated from renewable sources, Mm. you would still need the poles and wires 
to get the energy out. Exactly. Large scale renewables for sure. So if you're still sending it longer distances, but at the same time, and I mean, the system doesn't work like this yet really anyway, even if you have uh, what's come to be known as a smart grid where you're sending electricity, maybe smaller distances, you still need infrastructure to send it between even houses. The cost would probably be less than sending it further, but we don't currently have that system in place that you would be able to do that yet. And it really strikes me that what is so critical with energy policy is actually a long-term view and building that infrastructure with a view to the future. Yeah, very much so. You need to start future-proofing, basically. We can be guaranteed, I think, uh, at least some point in the future that, that we will have a system dominated by renewables, particularly distributed energy resources, so things like small-scale solar and batteries on households. So the, there was an investigation by the Energy Networks Australia, so they're the peak body for the network businesses, as well as CSIRO, who um, suggested that we might have as much as 45% of electricity produced by basically consumers. They've come to be known as prosumers, so producing consumers by 2050. So you've got this enormous shift in the system where you've gone from sort of top-down centralised large generators sending it one way down the system to one where you've got much more two-way flows. Okay, so that's like people with solar panels on their house generating more than they actually consume and putting it back in the... Exactly. And we do already have that. So, I mean, you have things like feed-in tariffs where people are being paid for the solar that they're not consuming and they're often not consuming it because it's during the middle of the day. Uh, but once you have more batteries in the system and people are able to store it, then you can actually control those flows. And we've digressed a little bit, mm. but before we go back to government policy, is there work actually happening at the moment to do that future-proofing? There is, and I think this is perhaps what's slightly disappointing about what the kind of focus that the federal level gets is that a lot of this stuff goes on at the state level. Not to say that there aren't uh, investigations sort of more looking at the federal level. There's currently one by the Australian Energy Market Operator and, again, Energy Networks Australia looking at kind of where we're heading because it really is this acceptance that we're heading towards a distributed energy future. I guess it relates as well to the sorts of policy levers that the federal government are able to pull though. So I think we've spoken previously that the federal government actually only has the power to implement emissions targets. They can implement different policy instruments to meet those targets, but they don't have the really kind of fine scale, more instrumental policy instruments to play with. Which requires there to be more collaboration and cooperation yeah. uh, and, and cross-design. And, yeah, know. definitely. And some of it does go on at COA. Yeah. It's not perhaps as dire as it may seem that there is technically no energy policy currently, but it doesn't mean that work isn't going on because I think no matter what, there is agreement that we are heading in a particular way. It may just be more about the pace that we're getting there. Going back then to government policy, and you've touched on the reliability aspects, mm. so I think we'll go straight to then the third mm. pillar, which I think is the elephant in the room, and that is coal yeah. and, and coal-generated energy and emissions uh, reduction. Yeah. Now, the Coalition has affirmed their commitment to lowering carbon emissions as part of their Paris commitments from, mm. what, 26 to 28% based on... 2005 levels yeah. uh, by 2030 and they're stating that this is going to be easily met and yet there's experts in the field who are saying that actually this is not the case that the government's not going to meet its commitment so putting mm. to one side the fact that there is a very strong body of expertise saying 26 28% anyway is far too low yeah. what's the reality here are those targets going to be met i would be surprised where our emissions are currently increasing 
uh, year on year since the carbon price was removed. And one thing I had heard is the way that it's being framed is that it's being met in one industry. Yeah. And that's being isolated. And so you hold on to some sliver of truth by saying in one industry, a target is being met and you disregard what's happening elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what happened when there was such enormous focus on the electricity sector that we've had over the past few years. It relates also to the fact that we are, um, ever since sort of carbon prices became so politically poisonous, you move down the kind of rank of what policy instruments you have available to you. You don't really come up with many new policy instruments of how to reduce emissions. They're basically pretty well set out and they become less and less efficient. Once you go from whole of economy options such as a carbon price you're now moving into more sectoral um, emissions policy instruments and that's what we've had so you had a focus on the electricity sector that didn't work it's fallen over I mean the only one that the coalition currently have is the climate solutions package where they're actually paying different sectors to reduce emissions a major part of that is carbon farming there are other ones with indigenous land practices and uses but pretty small-scale stuff for the the sorts of emissions cuts that we're talking about and so the NEG sought to reduce emissions by encouraging retailers mm. to source from a range of, of energy sources yep. with one of the requirements to be you know, low emissions. Mm. Now that that's gone, this climate package that you refer to is really all that's on the table. Pretty much it seems, yeah. It's a bit concerning. There, there really is no mechanism to really get to our target or no effective mechanism, essentially. And it takes me to my last question. And we seem to have a dangerous and a simplistic binary happening in this country, or at least a narrative of one, mm. which is, you know, either you're for climate action and against coal, or you love coal and you don't care about global warming. And I think yeah. it's such a false binary because things aren't quite so black and white and simplistic no. as that. Uh, and we have to factor in things like, um, you know, jobs, livelihoods, sure. fears about the future and so on. So how do we how do we go about breaking down that division and getting beyond those entrenched positions is something that enables us both to effectively and realistically address climate change while not expecting that those who are in the most precarious livelihood situations are bearing the brunt. Yeah, and I agree. You can't just suddenly remove an entire industry from your economy all of a sudden. I mean, one for the economic impacts, but also those people who work in that industry. You've got to start actually looking at what you're going to do with all of these people who may well lose their job. And I can understand that there's sort of strong cultures in these things. And so it's not an easy process, but other countries have done it. And I think there are lessons to be learned from those other countries, Germany in particular. I mean, I saw a gentleman from one of the peak bodies of the German coal industry who came to speak at a conference. And I mean, he had plenty of ideas. There were politicians there listening. But yeah, it never really seemed to take off. He had transitioning ideas. Yeah, he was basically there telling us about the lessons from what they actually did. And I think that's it. You can't ignore the impacts of what these strong climate targets might be. You, You need to bring everyone along. You can't leave people in the dark and sort of move into this clean, green world by forgetting others. Of course. Yeah. But what it sounds like is that there are strategies, but they're not getting a hearing and politics unfortunately, is continuing to dominate. Yeah, definitely. Look, let's hope that we are able to, to create you know, more of a space where those options and those alternatives and those strategies are being heard because mm. the reality is, is that's the way we have to go. Definitely. Carl, it's really been a pleasure to speak to you and good luck with the, the rest of the thesis and the thank homeward you. stretch. And, yep. and thank you very much for coming on to Subject ACT. Cheers. Thanks for having me again. That was Carl Titterman in conversation with Sophie Singh on the murky area of energy policy and politics in Australia. 
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to me, Heather Murray, on Subject ACT at your people-powered radio, 2XXFM 98.3. Now, let's turn to a story about learning, connection, opportunity and hope. Here, I'm speaking with Diana Smith, manager of the ACT's new recovery college. Hi, Diana, and thanks for taking time out to be with us here at 2XX. Hello, Heather. We're talking about Recovery College today. Now, I've heard about senior colleges for year 11 and 12, and I've heard about TAFE colleges and university colleges, but what is a recovery college? Okay, a recovery college uh, fills a unique position in um, mental health services. They're not a clinical service but or a therapeutic in nature, and they're not quite the same as community-managed services, but we complement them. Mm-hmm. So we're an educational service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we share the same objectives of recovery and community part- participation, uh, but they provide something substantially different. Okay, well, now I jumped on your website and I noticed that the core values that are reflected by the Recovery College are learning, connection, opportunity and hope. What lies behind those words? They're they're very bold words. Okay, so learning is about promoting a person-centred education where the voice of lived experience is heard, respected, in equal partnership with clinicals and professionals. Um, Connection is about enhancing social inclusion and getting people out into the community. It's a part of learning to live a good life. Yeah. Uh, Opportunity is about it's never too late to learn Mm -hmm. and to get new skills. Um, And hope is all about recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is this new approach with a recovery college a sign of shifting community attitudes towards people living with mental ill health or mental health conditions more generally? Um, I think it is a little bit. Well, I think it is quite a lot. One of the things that recovery colleges can do is help reduce stigma um, around mental illness because it normalises mental illness. Mm -hmm. It gives people, um, it dispels the myths and it contributes to the greater knowledge and understanding of mental illness. Mm, And stigma is quite a a difficult thing Mm. to to break through, isn't it? Yeah. College, um, there's been colleges around in um, like the UK for 10, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they, that when they do the research, one of the things that students say is that they like being called students mm-hmm. rather than clients or patients. And it changes their idea of themselves as well as other people's ideas of what they are. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, having a learning environment is, um, changes the way that people see themselves so it reduces self-stigma as well yeah yeah and that's really important yeah for a person's self-confidence i imagine yeah how are the courses devised that you run at the college do do people have to sit exams or no do anything like that no and they don't need referrals from doctors or anything like that they can just self-refer just enroll and the basic premise of recovery college is that all the courses are co-produced the whole college is co-produced. So the recovery colleges in different places will, will be slightly different because it develops and grows because of how the community develop it. Mm-hmm. So a Canberra recovery college, is, it will be unique. And the basic premise, as I said, is co-production. 
And one of the great things about that is that it is done between two people with one with lived experience of mental health issues and one with professional experience of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And it's an equal partnership. Right. So do the students and the tutors create the courses together then? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's been a few of the courses that have been developed or um, that we're putting on that people have actually asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have got one starting on sound recovery and it's about using music and songs to tell your mm-hmm. story. How do these courses differ from existing outpatient activities that, that are offered in Canberra? Well, we're not a clinical service. We mm-hmm. are a learning environment Mm -hmm. um so we are like i said it's um we try and get an environment where it's really nice and safe and comfortable for people it is an environment where the people with lived experience of mental health issues and that includes people that have mental health issues and people that care for them have an equal standing in the college uh, which is a bit different than clinical environments mm-hmm. and how long does does somebody have to be at the college to graduate if you like how, how um, we don't actually graduate as such mm-hmm. um, you can enroll in any of the courses that you want to mm-hmm. so you can come for one course or you could come for every course oh, if you okay. want to all right so it's very relaxed mm-hmm. and easily accessible mm. in that way yep very how does the college help students then move into mainstream education and employment? What are the benefits for students going to recovery college? Um, like I said, it's a safe environment for people to explore their own recovery mm-hmm. and to um, start participating in the community again. Um, so we help people with their self-esteem. We help people to basically get back into the community and that could lead to further education or it could lead to to employment. Mm-hmm. One of the good things about the recovery college that are more established is that quite often their students will become their educators. So they'll oh, come okay. in as a student and then gain the confidence to actually become an educator mm-hmm. and develop a course and, and facilitate a course. Have you got um, student educators at the college at the moment? We have got peer educators that have uh, issue, uh, mental health issues, yeah. Mm-hmm. What sort of qualifications do the tutors have at the college? Where are they from? Are they... Um, they're from all walks of life. Are they volunteers or are they...? Yes, they're, well, they're volunteers, but we do pay for the development of course and for them to um, facilitate the courses. Mm-hmm. So they, they, will, uh, they do get paid for doing that. But it's, uh, we've got a wide range of people. We've got people who have been in education, have been teachers, and we've also got people that are, are carers and have, haven't been in the workforce for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a range. Speaking of carers, do you offer courses for families, carers and allies of people who live with yep. mental health conditions? Yeah, the college is open to anybody that's got an interest in mental health issues who wants to know more about mental health and uh, wants to know more about recovery mm-hmm. and um, what that means. Mm. Who, who actually runs the college? Is it a community-based thing? Yeah, it's a community-based thing. Uh, we're funded by the ACT government to do a two-year trial mm-hmm. and we're nearly six months through the trial now. But, um, yeah, it's a community organisation. Mm-hmm. And part of the college is run by a consortium and the Mental Health Community Coalition, ACT Carers 
and the consumer network, mental health consumer network, are part of that consortium, as well as one of the divisions in ACT Health. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, those organisations put in courses through the college as well. Um, it's about people learning new knowledge and about them learning new skills and about them getting the confidence to actually move on. Mm. Okay, well, thanks very much for all of that information on the Recovery College, Diana. Before we go, how do people actually contact the college? Um, they can contact us through phone number, which is 0490-775-436. And we can also, you can also contact us through the website. And what's the address there? Uh, www.recoverycollegeact, or one word, .org. And there's a contact form there. There's also enrolment forms for the next, well, there will be enrolment forms for the next term and um, information about all our courses. Okay. Okay. Well, good luck with the college and uh, all the best with, for the students uh, who live with mental ill health in the ACT. Great to have you in here today. Thank you. that interview with Diana Smith, Manager Recovery College ACT, brings us to the close of the show. I'm Hedda Murray and it's been great having your company tonight.